Earlier this month, the draft of a major Supreme Court opinion leaked, one that indicated the court was on the brink of overturning Roe v. Wade. Now, of course, the content of the leak was a huge deal. It spurred excitement on one side of the abortion debate and massive protests on the other. But in all of that uproar, it's been easy to forget about something that happened this time last year. Something that can actually explain how we got here. So I've been thinking about where I was pretty much exactly this time last year. Caroline Kitchener covers abortion for The Post. I was in Austin. I was sitting outside the Texas state capitol as the governor was about to sign this monumental abortion ban. Thank you for joining with us here today. That banned abortion after six weeks in the state of Texas. Now we're about to make it law. Now, Caroline wasn't alone outside the Capitol that day. She was actually sitting beside one of the main architects of the Texas bill, a man named John Sego. He's a legislative director of Texas Right to Life, which is the largest anti-abortion group in Texas. And he was thrilled. Well, he was so excited because he felt like he had cracked the code. At that point, it was about a dozen other states had done bills extremely similar to this one. And those bills had made it through. They'd passed the legislature. They'd been signed by the governor into law. But then they'd all, you know, one by one, been blocked by the courts. And John Sego was so excited because he felt like in the state of Texas, they actually had a chance to get this law to go into effect. And that's when he explained exactly how he would do that, this really unique legal strategy that I had never heard about before. A strategy that would make it really hard to challenge the law in court. And so I left that day thinking, hmm, is that really the secret to banning abortion? And I think about that day a lot because here we are one year later, and it's clear that it has worked. It's been a year since this bill, Senate Bill 8, was signed into law. And since it went into effect, women in Texas haven't been allowed to get abortions after six weeks. That's earlier than most people even realize they're pregnant. I was just at a clinic in San Antonio where pretty much every day women are turned away because they're too far along. After SB 8 was signed into law, the Supreme Court had several opportunities to overturn it. But it didn't, which to Caroline signaled something important about the moment we're in. Before that, before the Supreme Court had opportunities to strike down the Texas law and block it, personally, I didn't think there was much chance they were going to overturn Roe. But then they let this ban stay in place, not once, not twice, but three times. And to me, that was a signal the clearest signal that we have of where the court stands. That is, ready to overturn Roe and end the constitutional right to an abortion. That's not to say there weren't efforts to overturn the law. There was one doctor who tried. A doctor who thought, like many of us thought, that 
breaking this law would be the first step to overturning it. But those efforts have only proven how effective and strong the law is and how much of a sea change has happened in Texas and in the rest of the country. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi, in for Martine Powers. It's Thursday, May 19th. Today, what Texas can show us about the future of a post-Roe America, one year after SB 8. We have the story of the activist who helped craft the law, the doctor who tried to challenge it, and the lessons that both sides have taken away from its success. No, no, I'm good to go. All right, and I've got mine. Um, so I, I just kind of wanted to start. So I reached out to John Sego a couple of weeks ago just to kind of check in about, you know, as we came up on this year anniversary, I wanted to see how he was feeling knowing that this law had been in effect for so long and had been successful for so long. You know, John is a, you know, young strategist who has devoted much of his life to this issue. And he is a source that I have kept going back to over time because he, you know, he's not a lawyer, but he is really sharp on the legal issues and understands deeply the legal strategy of the Texas law. I asked him to tell me about the origin story about, you know, the various lawmakers and legal thinkers who contributed to this law being what it is. Um, A lot of these elected officials, I mean, this is one of the reasons they ran for office in the first place, is to uh, protect innocent human life. He talked about meeting with various people, lawmakers, other advocates, lawyers, who wanted to see a abortion ban in Texas. And the charge was simple. How do we create a abortion ban here in Texas that would survive the legal challenges that have defeated similar bans in all of these other states? How can we write a bill that will succeed where 13 other states have failed? An important thing to understand is that under Roe v. Wade, the right to abortion is protected up until the point of viability. So up until the point that a fetus could theoretically survive outside of the womb. And that's usually around 24 weeks. So what would happen with all these previous bans, abortion rights groups, they would challenge the legislation as soon as it passed and they would be successful. It's a well-worn path of the legislature passes a bill as soon as it's passed, you know, Planned Parenthood says to the media, we'll see you in court. They would sue whoever it was who was supposed to enforce the law. So typically that would be the attorney general of the state or the state health department, something like that. And then we get, you know, a federal district judge who rules against us. And then we're fighting in court until it's resolved. So what's different about this approach, the Texas law, is that private citizens and that means any person anywhere in the country, could be the one to enforce the law. Actually, they, you know, have to be the ones to enforce the law. 
And that's where it got really hard to challenge because in order to challenge, you have to know who's going to enforce the law, but you didn't know who that enforcement person was going to be because it could be anyone. And so abortion rights groups who typically challenge these laws, they have no way of knowing which of those you know, millions of people is actually going to be the one to try to enforce the law. And therefore, they have no way to block it. And this disrupted that narrative because, um, you know, who exactly are the defendants? This, this really disrupted that back and forth. So I asked John to think back to last year and remember, you know, what he thought was going to happen with this law, whether he thought that it would actually work. And he admitted that he had some doubts. Personally, I was concerned uh, that the law was going to go to effect and there was going to be no change. You know, he thought that the clinics across Texas were just going to keep providing abortions after six weeks as if, you know, the law wasn't there at all. I was concerned that they would just continue business as usual and kind of dare us, since the burden is on the one bringing the lawsuit, you know, to to put together a, a case, you know, enough evidence to put together um, a credible case to actually hold them accountable through that civil liability piece. If that was to happen, he wanted there to be something in place for people to find out about and report those violations of the law. So you saw Texas Right to Life come out with... ProLifeWhistleblower.com. A tip line, an online tip line where people could go with reports of clinics that they suspected to be breaking the law. And if no one else brought the lawsuits, that, that my organization would make sure people knew about it and, you know, possibly bring them ourselves if, if necessary. This approach was extremely controversial. You know, I was thinking about needing to put this web address on billboards or, you know, do some kind of advertising campaign and... I think it was like the third day that the website was live. Uh, we didn't need an advertising campaign. Um, we didn't need to tell anybody about it because the story took off. They were flooded with, you know, hackers and and people, you know, putting in bogus reports, and you know, the internet went crazy about this, you know, pro-life tip line in Texas. That led to over a million, in September, over a million attempted hacks at the website per day. And that put us on the list of targets for the hacktivist group Anonymous. But the sort of ironic thing is that this tip line was never necessary because... We were happy to see that all of the clinics you know, said that they were going to, to follow the law. And so at that point, the website was really unnecessary. They were taking the law seriously. They were going to comply with it. So, I mean, in the end, they didn't need the tip line because all of the clinics across the state of Texas just complied with the law, with one exception. Can I get you something to drink, a water or something? Um, I'm going to sure. use yeah. the rest. Yeah, water is good. So there, there was one doctor who didn't fully comply with the law. 
and his name is Dr. Alan Braid. He is a provider in San Antonio, Texas. He runs Alamo Women's Reproductive Services. He owns you know, clinics in Texas and also Oklahoma. The number of patients from Texas is huge. We're trying to accommodate as many patients as possible, yeah. but there's a, a limit. He's in his late 70s, and he's really spent his whole life fighting for abortion care and providing it. He was really inspired by an experience that he had really early on in his career when he was working at an emergency room. So we saw uh, illegal botched abortions. I had three patients that uh, I uh, personally had a hand in taking care of that died. And the way that he's described it to me is just, he never wanted to see that again. So right from the start, I, I said, and I'm not a lawyer, I said, you know what? The only way we're going to get into court and get this overthrown is to do a case. Quite early on, after he heard about SB8, he identified it as something that Texas providers should be worried about. And in the weeks leading up to the law taking effect, he told me that he had a meeting with every person that worked at his clinic. And he said, you know, are you with me if we comply with this law? And also, are you with me if we don't comply? He wanted to know where all of his staff stood. Because hypothetically, under this law, anybody who worked at that clinic could be sued if they didn't comply. Most of the staff said yes, but... A few key people said no. So he decided that he was going to break the law. He was going to do an abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. And he did that hoping that he would then be answered with a whole bunch of very serious lawsuits that would then become the gateway to overturning this law, to blocking this law for good. But that's not what happened. After the break, why the legal challenges Braid and so many others expected did not come, and what that meant for the future of abortion care in the state. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. In an attempt to challenge the Texas law, Braid scheduled an illegal abortion for Labor Day last year. Caroline picks up the story from here. He wanted to do it on a day when the rest of the staff wasn't in. So, you know, if he did get sued, there would be a very limited number of people that could potentially be implicated in those lawsuits. And he didn't tell very many people. He told just a few that were really close to him. And so they all go into the clinic 
And, you know, the way that he describes it, there was a there was a weight to that day, right? The the number one priority, and he was really clear about this, the number one priority was helping this woman. She needed an abortion and he was gonna help her get one. But everybody in the room that day was aware that it wasn't just this abortion, that this abortion could potentially lead to really significant consequences for women across the state. It could significantly open up access again. And there was a heavy responsibility in that. It felt like progress, like Mm -hmm. something good other than me helping that patient was going to happen. We're, We're going to finally, you know, get this thing uh, overturned. Yeah. So it started with Andrea Braid, who is Dr. Braid's daughter, going to pick up the woman. Because, of course, anybody who even picked up the woman and brought her to the clinic could potentially be sued. I was an aider and a better. And <laughs> I got to... Um, pick her up and bring her to the clinic and um so we you know got to chat in the car and um you know the the woman knew exactly what they were doing you know she knew that they were breaking the law and she was you know fully on board with that and I think you know felt passionately about the importance of that you know I I I just remember our conversation just you know not about why she was having an abortion but about you know, what she hopes it will accomplish for others um, in doing so. And then getting to the clinic, and it was very, like, you know, this top-secret event. We were closed, and, you know, we just had to ask for security to be there, but it was just us, and so I'm sure he was confused, like, why was he there? And then it was just, um, you know... My dad did what he's been doing for <laughs> so many years, and it was over in minutes, and we all kind of got to just hang out and chit-chat, and and then I took her back to her hotel. You know, after the surgery, I think there were a lot of emotions from everybody involved, you know, Andrea said her dad, he's very stoic. You know, he never cries. He doesn't get emotional. And he he did that day, she said. And, you know, they all hug. And I had all these visions of, you know, oh my God, he's going to be in front of the Supreme Court. Like, he is going to be on record. It is going to be him. He is going to help every woman in Texas, like my dad. So... You know, it wasn't just enough, right, to do this abortion. People had to know about it because if nobody knew about it, they weren't going to get any lawsuits and they weren't going to have a chance at overturning this law. So Dr. Braid decided to write an op-ed actually in the Washington Post. On the morning of September 6th, I provided an abortion to a woman who, though still in her first trimester, was beyond the state's new limit. I acted because I had a duty of care to this patient as I do for all patients and because 
she has a fundamental right to receive this care. So right around the time that the op-ed came out, Dr. Braid gathered all of the staff together and, you know, he, he, he wanted to tell them all what he had done before they heard about it in the news. And instead of telling them, he decided to just play the audio recording of him reading his op-ed. I fully understood that there could be legal consequences, but I wanted to make sure that Texas didn't get away with its bid to prevent this blatantly unconstitutional law from being tested in court. After Dr. Braid's op-ed, I was keeping a really close eye on Texas Right to Life and what they would come out and say on Twitter, on Facebook. And I was really surprised that there weren't you know, major calls for people to sue him and go after him in the way that the tip line suggested they would spring into action if there were any violations at all. I thought that when you wrote the op-ed, yeah. it was done. Like, I, yeah. I did so you did I. think that? Absolutely. I, I, I thought, I thought was, here we go. Yeah. We're, we're going to... We're going to win this. We're going to win And, you know, we waited for lawsuits. And so I asked Sego about that when I talked to him a couple of weeks ago. What he said he actually did was very vague. He didn't feel that Braid was specific enough about what he had done and the violation of the law in the op-ed to take him to court. Now, I was pretty skeptical of that because... Braid pretty much spells it out in this op-ed, exactly what he did. So when I was talking to him, I actually decided to pull up the op-ed and read from it to Seiko, specifically the lines where Braid said that he had done this abortion and violated the law. And he says, and that is why on the morning of September 6th, I provided an abortion to a woman who, though still in her first trimester, was beyond the state's new limit. I, so I, 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 I'm just not totally clear. Like that, you you felt like that was too vague. Yeah, we you, we took it seriously, and we looked at exactly what he said, and we had to think about what does this look like in court. Is this enough to you know open deposition? Is this enough to convince a judge that this is a case worth looking into? And we didn't think it was. We thought that he was intentionally vague and avoided the issue. Now, if he would have written the op-ed and said. I followed the steps of the law. I performed the necessary procedures to detect whether the child has a heartbeat. I did detect a heartbeat. I recorded it as law required, and then I performed the abortion anyway. That is different, right? That is a lot more concrete and different. And that's what you know, we would like to hear from him in court to be able to prove to the judge illegal activity actually occurred. What I tried to get to in the conversation and, and where we did eventually end up is that they didn't want anyone serious to sue Braid. Right. And from your perspective, like, you don't really want that to happen, right? Because it's working in the way that you guys want it to. Well, I mean, no. I mean, right now, we, we're not trying to change anything, right? This is, this is functioning. But ultimately, I mean, we're not avoiding that. If, if there are those cases, then yes, those questions need to be asked. But, you know, as far as, as we go, we're going to try to be very prudent about those, you know, proceeding in that way. So, I mean, this to them was already 
a success. Abortions were not happening in, a, in Texas after six weeks of pregnancy. And if there was a legitimate challenge and somebody took Braid to court, that could open the door to blocking this law. It quite quickly became clear that the kinds of lawsuits that Dr. Braid had been expecting were not going to materialize. There were three individuals, one in Arkansas, one in Texas, and one in Illinois, that filed lawsuits against Dr. Braid. But they were not really serious ones. They didn't want to spend the money to serve me. I mean, you know, it was just crazy. And so, you know, the way that he described it to me, he started kind of going around to various people in his life saying, you know, will will you sue me? I told my brother. My brother said, hey, I'll sue you. (laughs) Can't be brain versus brain. I mean, it was kind of a joke, but kind of not, right? He really wanted somebody to to take him to court. The challenges against Braid haven't yet reached the Supreme Court and don't seem likely to anytime soon. But the court has already had three other opportunities to block the Texas law. In those cases, abortion rights groups had sued local judges, law clerks, and other people that they deemed responsible for enforcing the law. The Supreme Court focused on whether these groups were suing the right people, and each time, the court refused to block the Texas law. At the same time, the court's conservative majority never explicitly said whether the Texas law was constitutional or not. And of course, That all happened even before the court indicated how it might rule in the case Dobbs v. Jackson, the case that could cause them to overturn Roe. So, of course, you know, about two weeks ago, all of us learned about this leaked draft decision, which is a full-throated reversal of Roe v. Wade. And... If Roe is overturned, SB-8 and laws like it are likely to pretty much immediately go away, right? They don't—anti-abortion lawmakers in these states don't need that sort of novel workaround approach anymore. They can just ban abortion, period, full stop, don't need to do anything fancy. They just can. And John was thrilled when the leak came out. Even though all of the signs were pointing in that direction, there was still this kind of looming hesitancy to get too excited. Uh, So once we saw the draft, it was really, um, yeah, really amazing for the movement to confirm, yes, we're, we're not imagining things. The court is headed in this direction. But I also had a really interesting conversation with him about the meaning of SB8. In the grand scheme of things, if Roe was overturned, I asked him, you know, 10 years from now, when we're talking about the unraveling of Roe and the end of widely accessible abortion in America, will we be talking about the Texas law? And he said, 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I, I do think that the Texas law uh, has had a huge role in, in getting us to where we are right now with Dobbs. I think this really set the stage for Dobbs in that you've had a state that has kind of been a pilot, you know, uh, kind of a test case for what, you know, these kind of huge decrease in abortions will look like. It has proven that states really don't have to worry too much about the Supreme Court. I mean, that's a game changer because that means no matter what the Supreme Court does in Dobbs, states can essentially go around that ruling. I mean, that there's no going back. That states know they have this tool no matter what the Supreme Court does. And, you know, from his perspective, what what he said to me was it showed people that wouldn't make the sky fall. There won't be this massive political fallout. They can do these kinds of restrictions without the kinds of ramifications that a lot of people, and even conservative people, feared. The way that we're explaining it to our Republican elected officials is that whenever the session starts in January, uh, no matter what happens with Dobbs, we have to ensure that Texas is abortion-free, but we also have to make sure that Texas is pro-life, that we're building a pro-life state to support pregnant women and their families. And, you know, for the abortion rights side in Texas, SB8 had huge ramifications. I mean, some of the most difficult moments of these providers' lives, they've told me, are the moments when they've had to turn women away. And they've had to do that again and again and again over the last 10 months. I mean, these last uh, months have been really discouraging. There's not a day goes by that I pre-op patients and say, uh, we can't offer services here. When I know that I could take care of that problem in three minutes. It's heartbreaking. You know, I was in San Antonio last week and I talked to Dr. Braid about what comes next for him, what comes next for the clinic. And, you know, it's almost a certainty that the clinic is going to close. But, you know, I think the point to hit home is that one, women are going to be forced into parenthood and there will be women that die because they could not get an abortion uh, at a uh, licensed facility uh, or Uh, They're forced to continue a pregnancy that endangers their well-being. And he's starting to think about going to another state. Should he open a clinic in New Mexico, in Illinois? Where can he go to help the most people who need this care? 
And he's thinking about that, as I think a lot of abortion providers are across the country right now. Caroline Kitchener is a national political reporter for The Post. On Thursday, lawmakers in another state, Oklahoma, passed a bill that mirrors the Texas ban. This one prohibits abortion from the moment of, quote, fertilization. Now it heads to the governor's desk, and if he signs it, it would go into effect immediately. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Rennie Svernofsky and Robin Amer. It was edited by Maggie Penman and Peter Walston. It was mixed by Ted Muldoon and Sean Carter. Special thanks to reporter Anne Marimo and Leah Scarpelli, who recorded our interview with John Sego. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.